First John chapter 4. We will read from verse 7 to verse 12 in the interest of time. First John chapter 4 verse 7 to verse 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he had loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Well, brethren, it's been a bit of a lengthy break since we were last in this um, epistle of John, where John is, is giving us different tests for assurance of salvation. This is how we can know that we are truly the children of God. He's given us quite a number of tests, and I trust that if you have been here long enough, by now you are either saying to yourself, I am not a Christian. I need to do something about it to become a true child of God. Or you are saying, thank God I am a child of God. There is enough evidence here concerning that fact. The last few Sundays when we were in this passage of scripture, we're looking at chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 6, in which the Apostle John was talking to us about our responsibility to test the spirits. In other words, we must not take for granted that just because a person claims to be a Christian and a Christian teacher for that matter, that he must be telling us the truth and he must be teaching us that which will take us to heaven. Many people are in fact possessed by the wrong spirit and consequently are being inspired to teach us error, in fact, to teach us heresy uh, so that in the end we may be misled and find ourselves in hell. And so he gives to us, first of all, the fact that this is a personal duty the instruction is giving here is not simply to, to the elders and, and teachers in the churches. It is to every person who claims to be a child of God. 
we must take it upon ourselves to make sure that we are only listening to those who will take us to heaven. And then he also gives the test, the ultimate test that we are to give, and it's a Christ-centered test. It is a doctrinal test. We must be asking ourselves the question, what is this person saying about the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if a person is right everywhere else, but is wrong on this point, then such a person will destroy our souls in the end. We are to make sure that the person is teaching us the, the full menu concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's not just lisping the name, but he's giving us the full menu concerning him as a savior. But if you remember, I mentioned again and again that chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 6 is in a kind of bracket. It is in a parenthesis. It's a small detour from what the Apostle John is actually dealing with. Because his main business from verse 11 onwards, right up to the end of chapter 4, and I can even argue that it is up to chapter 5, verse 5, is on the whole issue of love and the need for us to love one another. You will notice, therefore, that that's what he returns to at the, in the text that we are looking at this morning. Beloved, let us love one another. He's already been dealing with it all the way from verse 11 of chapter 3, where he said, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. You can understand why John is referred to as the apostle of love. I mean, in the greatest chunk, in his entire epistle, he is occupied with this issue of love. And consequently, we ought to take this seriously. We ought to take it to heart. That Christianity is not only about your head, your understanding, what you are able to recite by way of catechism, by way of a confession of faith, what it is you understand. It's more than that. Christianity is also about the heart. What is happening in the heart? Is there love in the heart? Are you a person who, as it were, wells out with love for the brethren? That's what he deals with here. And as we return to the subject of love, please don't sit there thinking, I've heard it all. Instead, say to yourself, why is this man spending so much time on this issue? Most likely, it should be because it is important, it is vital. If I miss the point here, I am lost altogether. And therefore, let me again ask myself the question, am I loving? Am I loving the brethren. 
Let's go to our text then. And today, I only hope to make use of chapter 4 and verse 7 as I introduce this section before us. We should never be in doubt, brethren, that love for believers is vital. Love for believers is not an optional extra to life and living. Hence the appeal that John returns to, that he repeats as a proof of our salvation. Beloved, he says in verse 7, let us love one another. Now if you look at where we are coming from, this is a repetition that he has made over and over again. In verse 11, where I have already quoted, that's what he has said. We should love one another. Verse 16, he says, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In verse 18, he says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In verse 23, he says, And this is his commandment, that we believe in his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. And then verse 7 Beloved, let us love one another. If you've been here for the last few weeks or the last few months, by now you should be saying yes. Clearly, this is God's command for me. And you should be saying to yourself, what am I doing about this? Remember that this is not an appeal to love everyone that you ever come across, but it is an appeal to love fellow believers, fellow Christians, and hence the phrase, love one another. The understanding is that it's to do with the people of God and you having a special love for them. And the Christians, or the believers being referred to here, must be those who are in close proximity to you. In other words, those that you are together with in your church, or those that you are together with in your neighborhood, or those that you are together with in your workplace. And we easily see that when we go back to chapter 3, verse 17, where John said, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In other words, here you are at church. And you can see a brother, you can see a sister in need. You know that this is John or this is Mary. You know them. And you are aware of their need. What are you doing about it? 
Are you loving them? Are you going out of your way to do something about it? That's what he's talking about. You see, we can all love the believers in Australia. We can all love them. Or in America, we can love them. Or in the Middle East, in Syria, or Iraq, or Iran. We can love them. Because we hardly know any John or Mary there. We, we don't know the specific individuals. It's, it's all hazy. It's all general. So we can sort of whisper a prayer in that direction. Lord, have mercy on the brethren there. But real love is with the people you are sitting with in the pew. That's where real love is. When you are bowing down to pray, then your eye looks at your brother's shoe, and you can see that this shoe has not seen polish. Since it was made in China. In fact, the front has since even opened up. It's spitting dust. You can see the dust on the floor. And then you, you close your heart. That's what it's dealing with here. It's those brethren that you are with. What are you doing about them? He's saying, let us love one another. Let's do something about this. And I need to emphasize that because it's about doing. It's not about seeing that shoe and just saying, Lord, bless. Ah. It's what are you doing? You, by name, for the brethren you are with. One passage that you must constantly go to in looking at this issue of love is Matthew and chapter 25. Matthew 25. Because Jesus refers to this and applies it to the judgment day. Matthew 25. I begin reading from verse 31, although my, the area of interest begins with verse 35. So while you're finding the passage, I'll begin reading. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will be separate. Rather, he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For, he's about to give the reason why. And many of us might be surprised that he's not saying, For, you repented of your sins and accepted me as your personal savior. That's not what he said. If that's what your Bible says, get your pen and cross that out. 
and instead write the following. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. In other words, I was in need and you did something about it. You didn't just feel something. You did something. You changed my circumstances from a situation of need and suffering to a situation of fulfillment and joy. Now, of course, the righteous are surprised about this because they didn't see Jesus in the flesh, so they asked the question in the following verse. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I said to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it. Me. In other words, back to First John five. I mean, First John four. You loved the brethren. That's what you did. You loved the brethren, and I took note of it when you saw the needs among the brethren, when you heard the needs among the brethren, you did something about it. Is that true of you? And I'm not asking about the person next to you. I'm saying you. Have you done anything about the sick who are your fellow church members? We've been hearing announcements concerning our brother, our former missionary, Brother Sunkutu. Has it even crossed your mind that this coming month end, I must make sure I cut off something and send it there? Has it? Or has it just been... Phew? None of my business. The bereaved. And I always like throwing in the poor students. Because a lot of young people are failing to continue with their education. Simply because they can't afford, their parents can't afford. And they are your fellow church members. What John is saying here is love them. Love them. Love them. Do just think about them and feel for them. But do something. Love them. Beloved, let us love one another. 
And the reason why we should love believers is because the source of love is God himself. The source of love is God himself. That's the reason that John himself gives here. He says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Love is from God. In other words, it is God himself wanting to love his children through you. His very nature is love. He has already shown something of that love by giving the best of heaven for them. We'll be seeing that in the next few weeks. Look at this in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that big word, the propitiation, simply means that he should die to take away the wrath, the justice of God that should have sunk us into the flames of hell. He suffers our punishment in our place. That's the love of God. And the song that we'll be singing at the end explores that fact that God should love a sinner such as I, should yearn to change my sorrow into bliss. And one of the things he does is he gives his own son the best of heaven in order to rescue us from hell. Having done that, now his children are in temporal need. Temporal need. The same heart yearns to change their circumstances and brings you into that person's life, brings you in because he's a God of love. He wants to work through you. Love is from God. The question is, is that love passing through you? Is it? Because remember, if you're a true child of God, we were learning at the end of chapter 3 that his spirit has been given to you. End of chapter 3, which strictly speaking is supposed to be the last verse because as I said, chapter 4, verse 1 to 6 is a parenthesis. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So his spirit who is living inside us is a spirit of holiness, but at the same time a spirit of love wanting to love his people. So surely you will be the means by which it will be done. Jesus won't come himself in the flesh and produce the Zambian kwacha 
and give it to your needy brother or sister and say, go buy yourself a new pair of shoes. He won't do it. But hey, hang on. He will do it through you. He will. We're talking about sending our brother to India to have the kidney transplant. Well, he's going to do it. Through us. Jesus will do it. Through us. He won't come down and produce American dollars or kwacha. He will do it through his people in whom he is dwelling by his spirit. He will do it. And when our brother comes back from India, he's going to say, I honestly belong to the family of God, the real people of God. I do. I do. So how does a person know that he is indwelt by God's spirit? How? Well, I'll tell you how he knows. It is that he is living a life of love that was not there before. There is a generosity that baffles him. It's the exact opposite of being indwelt by a demon. How do you know that a person is indwelt by a demon? Is it because he's neither here nor there? Just No. When people come to you and say, you know that chap is possessed, I can most likely tell you what it is about. The person is violent. Uncontrollable. And they say, you know, an ordinary human being is not like that. There must be a demon in there. Must be a demon. Well, let's go to the opposite extreme now. How will they know that you are possessed by God's spirit? It's not by the fact that you don't harm anybody. It's that you are also active beyond what is normal. But this time it's not the negative, it's the positive. People are being blessed because of you. You are spending and being spent for the people of God. And the only explanation they can give is this. It must be the spirit of God living in him. Because love is from God. Well, John ends this verse clearly by showing that this proves something. A life of love validates two realities. The first is that you are born again. And the second is that you know God. Listen to this. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And I want you to notice here that when he says whoever loves has been born of God, he's not simply saying whoever loves the brethren has been born of God. He's simply stating that fact 
in a general sense. Because yes, the ultimate test is the special love that we have for the people of God. But ultimately, love doesn't choose. Love goes out to the needy that I come across. So that's the general. You love the needy and especially love those of the household of faith. But the point that he's making, however, here is that this outflow where your heart just goes out to bless others who are in need. You schedule your diary around the needs that you are aware of. The, those who are sick, those who are bereaved, those who have been injured in one way or the other, emotionally, physically, those who are in emotional need in, in different ways. You, you are scheduling yourself and scheduling your financial budget, etc., etc. That which is coming out is because God has made you a new creature. You've been born of God. That's what he's saying here. It is proof. Because in our fallen nature, we don't love like that. No. We, we are selfish. We are self-centered. We never have enough. And even when we've been blessed to abundance, our dreams just get bigger and overlook the needs of others. That's natural with us. And often in a church, it's when a, a, a beautiful single lady becomes needy that all the young men start falling over each other to give her their entire salaries. Because they want her to say yes to their proposal. Have you seen? It's, it's always coming back to me. It's, it's, it's me. It's me. I'm investing to get my returns now. But when a person is just moved by the needs of others and begins to make the necessary adjustments to bless, you say, but where is this coming from? It's the new birth, the new birth, the new birth. And he says it's also proof of an ongoing knowledge of God. It means you know God. You are in fellowship with God. And as you interact with God by his spirit in your heart, you know that this is what life is is supposed to be all about. Because as you are alone praying to him, he brings to your own mind that brother who's in need, that sister who's in need. And you know what you're supposed to do. When you are off your knees, you do it. You come back on your knees the following day and you are full of gratitude to God. The one that you are relating to. The one that you know that is giving you opportunity 
to be a blessing to others. Look at your life, therefore, and see if this proof is there. Look at your life. Look at your life. Is the validation there that can really show that you are a true Christian? A true Christian. That you love the brethren. Not in word, but in deed. Look at your last one week. What was your life all about? Me, myself, and I, full stop. Or can you look at the last one week and say, yes, my heart could not be consoled until I went out of my way to do something, to do something, to do something about the brethren. That's Christianity. Friends, that's Christianity. It's not going to heaven through good works, it is the proof that Jesus Christ has genuinely saved us. And so even before we go into all this other section, all the way to chapter 5, verse 5, we can begin self-examination right away. Right away. Because our tendency is to reduce Christianity to just the brain. I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. It's in the brain. He died for me on the cross. It's in the brain. But we don't go one step further to ask the question, therefore, therefore, where is the proof of a changed life, a changed heart? Where is the proof? Because Christianity is about becoming like God. That's Christianity. God takes sinners, selfish sinners, self-centered sinners on their way to hell and transforms them into saints, loving saints, holy saints, Living for the glory of God and for the good of others. That's Christianity. As Jesus once said, if you only love those who love you, what difference is it with the non-Christians? That's what they do. But he says, even those that are harming you, love them so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Because that's what he does. He loves even those that don't love him. And that's the quarrel he had with the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees had everything out, sorted out religiously. Except this. They lacked true love. They lacked it. And so I want to say to you as I close... If you are religious, but your life is still around you, then you are not yet a Christian. Not yet. 
I can even add, even if you're a member of Kabwata Baptist Church, you were made wet right in this pool. But if your heart has not become a truly loving heart, especially, especially for the people of God sitting next to you in that pew, put a very big question mark on whether Jesus Christ has really saved you. And the least that you can do for yourself is to make a beeline out of this church today into your own bedroom, fall on your knees, and plead with the Lord Jesus Christ to really, really, really save you. And refuse to be comforted until you can see a likeness of Jesus in your heart. A life of love and sacrifice, joyfully so, for the glory of God and for the good of his people. If that's still not emanating from you, as I said, get back on your knees and plead with him before it is too late. Don't allow yourself to appear before God on the judgment day and give all kinds of little doctrinal excuses. Because he will say to you, get away from me. I never knew you. Because when I was hungry in the person of that brother next to you, you did nothing. When I was sick in the person of that sister next to you, you did nothing. Get away from me. Don't wait until then. Plead. Until you can see that this is not me. This must be God working in me. Amen.